before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. about to listen to a special preview edition of The End Game, featuring my co-host, Bill Fleckenstein. Joining us this time out is our very special guest, Michael Cow, the urban cowboy of Twitter, for a conversation that takes us in multiple directions, covering a wealth of topics, including commodities, monetary policy, the yield curve, and what Michael terms the dollar wrecking ball. This was a conversation for the ages. Every episode of the Grant Williams podcast, including The End Game, Super Terrific Happy Hour, The Narrative Game, This Week in Doom, and the new series Shifts Happen featuring Luke Groman is available to copper and silver tier subscribers at my website, grant-williams.com. Copper tier subscribers get access to all the podcasts, while members of the silver tier get both the podcasts and my monthly newsletter, Things That Make You Go Hmm. So, if you enjoy what you hear on the show and you want more high-quality content like it, then please make your way over to grant-williams.com and join our exciting community today. Now... On with the show. Michael, welcome to the Endgame. It's uh, it's a real pleasure for both of us to have you with us. Oh, likewise. I'm really flattered that you guys would uh, invite me onto your show and uh, very been looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, we got to, I mean, there, there is so much to talk about and you've been so prolific on Twitter and, and some of your uh, stuff on there has just been just such a, a great asset, I think, for people who are trying to figure out an awful lot of important stuff. And, and the place I'd like to start, I know Bill's got places he wants to go, but I'm going to save those for now because I know exactly where he wants to go given what's been happening the last couple of weeks. But um, I'd love to start with the dollar if I can because it, it's kind of the key to everything, it seems. Everything's kind of floating around it. And you, you wrote an epic thread about the dollar wrecking ball a while ago. So what I'd, I'd love for you to do, if you can, to kick off is is – kind of lay that thread out for people and and talk about your views on the dollar because we've had you know we've had guys on the podcast with differing views all of them elegantly laid out and you know it's tough to find an answer but it's really easy to find really thoughtful guys on both sides of the debate which is always fantastic if a little confusing so give us your dollar theory and then and then we'll kind of kick that around if we can sure so i actually came at this not from looking at the uh, the dollar, but actually looking at oil. You know, I've been involved in the oil trade for a number of years now. Uh, so I've, I pay a lot of attention to the macro fundamentals of oil and basically recognize that, you know, this time is a little bit different because we are in a long-term structural bull market in oil. The, the recent Ukraine-Russia conflict has certainly obfuscated certain parts of it, but I think the long-term thesis that, you know, we are seven years into what I'll call like a long-term capital starvation um, of this of this industry uh, that's been greatly exacerbated over the last few years by um, this focus on ESG at all costs. It's created this dynamic where it's not clear that even a mild recession can demand destruct our way out of a pretty severe energy crisis and a commodity inflation. So it was that as the centerpiece of my analysis that led me to think, okay, well, what are the other macro ramifications of this? And so I guess 
early last year, I think March of last year, I wrote a thread called the Commodity Price Inflation Butterfly, how this structural situation in oil would effectively create a very uncomfortable situation for the Fed and frankly, all the central banks around the world in becoming much more hawkish. And you know, if, if you recall, like just six or nine months ago, it was very much a anti-consensus view, right? I think a lot of folks thought that the Fed could not have the capacity to certainly consider the amount of hikes that, that are now, you know, arguably priced into the curve. But here we are, right? And so now I'm kind of leading to my, my theory on the dollar. The other thing is that the Fed has been way ahead of the curve in terms of monetary stimulus, both temporally as well as in abundance in terms of dealing with COVID. But now it, we are now on the backside of that, right? So we are about to unwind this record, you know, $3 trillion or $4 trillion expansion of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. And we're about to unwind it faster than the rest of the world. And so I think that is what originally led me to write the first Wrecking Ball thread back in December. And then this latest one that you may be referring to, this one that I called the Wrecking Ball World Tour, was really just to show that the DXY, as perhaps like the best measure of uh, the dollar against you know a basket of other fiat uh, currencies, has neared basically pre-COVID highs. You know, the DXY was near 100 before all of this epic COVID QE. Then it fell to 90. And then now it's just crested 100 again before QT really has even started. And of course, you could argue, okay, well, you know, maybe it's already pricing in a lot of forward QT, et cetera. Well, except that when the DXY went the other way, it was relatively coincident with the actual QE. So I wonder whether, you know, there's certainly some amount of forward pricing going on in this DXY, but I think it's also indicating a lack of real alternatives. So maybe I'll just stop there because I'm sure we're going to talk about it, but the big debate right now is you know, whether or not this weaponization of the dollar is going to lead to some, you know, Bretton Woods 3 or some new regime. And I'm just really not seeing the alternatives right now to the USD for the foreseeable future. Well, let me ask you a question about that. When you refer to it as weaponization, weaponization implies to me that, you know, the dollar is the strongest thing amongst a bunch of strong players when it's more to me like it's the proverbial least dirty shirt, so to speak. And while that doesn't change the fact that it's going to go up versus the others, I think the connotation is somewhat different. It's not like people are saying, wow, the way they're handling things in the States is so spectacular. We really need to be long the USD. Monetary policy in Japan and Europe is a train wreck to pick the two biggest uh, next to us. And of course, the one doesn't really count, I don't think. So it's like it's the one-eyed man in the land of the blind. Um, Do you think there's something special uh, about it besides the fact that it it is the world's reserve currency and we are the least bad? Am I being too negative in how I'm stating it? 
Well, I mean, look, there was another thread I wrote a while ago. I think I titled it uh, this hyperinflation, hyperventilation, and why like geographic assets also matter. Look, I spent most of my career actually studying micro, right? The individual balance sheets of companies as opposed to paying attention to macro. I only had to really force myself to start paying attention to macro matters when I got involved in you know energy-related uh, investments about seven years ago. But the reason why I think that's relevant is because if you look at what makes a fiat currency worthy of you know safety and soundness and worthy of global reserve currency status it's a whole host of features it is not just one metric like debt to gdp there's a lot of you know uh sturm and angst over you know we're at 130% debt to gdp and look at what happened in weimar germany etc cetera, etc cetera. but first of all debt is a measure of stock gdp is a measure of flow you have to also consider what is the national balance sheet right of the united states and so in that thread I looked at a lot of the geographic assets that, for instance, the geopolitics expert Peter Zahan and Tim Marshall would talk about, which is you know, our natural river network, our two oceanic buffers. How do you put a price on the entire Louisiana territory? I mean, there used to be a price on it, but now that entire area in terms of like the cheap natural river advantages. I mean, I think the U.S. has something like 17,000 river networks compared to the entire rest of the world's like 3,000 or something like that. And then if you consider our closest hegemonic rival, China, you could argue that China's riverine network is actually a liability as opposed to an asset. So there are all these other factors that are, I guess you could say, they're harder to quantify. And not to mention our Midwest has by far the largest contiguous amount of arable land in the world. And if you compare the amount of arable land that we have versus our population versus what China has, there's not even a comparison, right? So my point is that, you know, debt to GDP, our national natural geographic advantages confer a safety and soundness to the currency that actually allow us to have to allow our currency and our country to weather a lot of policy mistakes and bad decisions quite frankly and so i have no argument with the decisions that have been made over the last several decades that have led to where we are where we have essentially hollowed out our manufacturing capacity and subsidized you know global maritime security that's basically allowed countries like China to essentially massively benefit at our expense. But I will argue that those natural advantages that we have, that China is so desperately trying to recreate through One Belt, One Road, are a huge advantage. These One Belt, One Road initiatives, just in terms of energy alone, tell you how difficult it is for China to get to where we are naturally. We're not alone in the world in terms of being long shale deposits, but what allowed the shale revolution to happen here in the United States versus other parts of the world is the confluence of not only the shale deposits, but abundant water supply, good 
laws, property laws that allow private operators to benefit from the mineral rights as opposed to, you know, the state taking all of the benefits. So there are a lot more factors that go Full conversation is available to subscribers to the copper and silver tiers of my website, grant-williams.com. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.